Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, we'll be talking about the Hulu docuseries, Murders Before the Marathon. Joining me is journalist Susan Zalkine, the driving force behind the three-part series. Murders Before the Marathon follows Susan as she investigates the 2011 murder of three men in Waltham, Massachusetts, one of whom was a friend of hers, and the murder's connection to the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. Throughout the series, Susan searches for answers about whether the bombing could have been prevented if the Waltham murder case had been solved, as Tamerlan Sarnayev, one of the men found to have planted the bombs at the 2013 marathon, was also linked to the Waltham case by authorities shortly after the bombings. Here's the series trailer. I had never heard of a homicide like this. The news that crossed the wire made me sick. The neighbors came running out of the house yelling, they're dead. The three were found covered in marijuana and cash. Described as a bloodbath. Three people have been killed inside the second floor apartment of this cream-colored home. Brendan Mass, Raphael Tekken, Eric Wiseman. They were deeply loved by their families. And Eric was a good friend. When someone you know is murdered, you feel it in your bones. This murder was unusual. The three victims had been murdered execution style. Sharp forced injuries to the neck. Guns are business. Stabbing is personal. The story was in the news for a week, and then it seemed to disappear. The police did not pursue leads that appear crucial to understanding the murders. It's really difficult to make sense of all this with so little information from police. And then, in April 2013, a series of events occurred, which made it impossible for me to look away. Someone came running out of an office saying that a bomb had gone off. Jahar Zarnia and the other one. What's your name? Timberland. Those two brothers could be linked to a triple murder on the anniversary of September 11th. The most immediate question, did Tamerlan Sarnayev kill my friend? I've been looking into this case for more than 10 years. I followed paper trails. Tamerlan was engaging in radical thought and was vocally anti-Semitic. I was chasing leads. Journalism 101, follow the money. I can't believe it's true. It's crazy. Nobody wants to take responsibility for this. If police investigated this case thoroughly, would they have prevented the Boston Marathon bombing? I just want to scream. Susan Zalkine's reporting has also appeared in Boston Magazine, The Guardian, Vice, and The Daily Beast. She's appeared on This American Life, CNN, NBC, MSNBC, and the BBC. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow, share, and leave a comment if you'd like. And now on to my conversation with Susan Zalkine. Hello, Susan Zalkine, and welcome to Making Media Now. Thanks so much for having me. And congratulations on the uh, the docu-series Murders Before the Marathon. 
in which you are the uh, producer and you're the kind of the lead investigative reporter. Uh, so let's just start with context. The murders before the marathon in specific refer to a triple murder that took place on September 11th, 2011. Where were you when that crime first came on your radar? Well, I was um, fresh out of college. I was working my first job in journalism, which I was really excited about. In retrospect, it is kind of the um, lower tier entry level job, which is a freelance overnight uh, production assistant at New England Cabled News. Um, and I learned a lot while I, while I was there. Um, I don't want to undercut all the other freelance overnight production assistants out there that you, I learned so much, but I, I was a vital that. role. There's no, yeah. no argument about that. Um, but I was uh, working the overnight shift. So I was not in communication with my friends as I used to be. And I was just hungry to be an investigative reporter. I wanted to be a crime beat reporter and I was looking for a way to make my in. Um, I, my chirons were riddled with typos, but I felt like I had a good sense uh, about crime. And so when a story about a triple homicide in Waltham crossed the wires, I was intrigued. This was a murder that took place close to where I grew up in Newton. It, the murder was just a mile across the border. So this was an area that I was familiar, familiar with, and I had never heard of a homicide like this before. Sure. Um, it was unusual for ways that we can we can maybe get into later. So I was in the newsroom trying to figure out um, more about this story. Mm -hmm. And as, as you say, you're just starting out in your in your career as a journalist. But where did that drive to want to become an that particular type of a reporter, an investigative reporter, a crime reporter uh, come from? Well, you know, they say, write what you know. Um, How did you know this <laughs> crime? I well, my father's a criminal defense attorney. Okay. Um, so for us, true crime was more of an oral tradition. I grew up on stories about crime, criminals, the judicial system from my earliest memories. Um, I actually I blame one of my father's good friends, Ken Hartnett, is a journalist. And we actually threw a surprise birthday party for him on the day that O.J. Simpson's Bronco um, went off. So I remember I was about seven and there was a house full of journalists and they pulled off his blindfold. Everyone yelled surprised. And I had never seen a room of adults so riveted yeah. to anything. Yeah. Um, and I started following that case and following the the blow by blow with the trial of my father. For us, it was like sports almost um, right. following the movements of the court, the strategy. And um, when I was younger, I also hung out with a lot of marijuana dealers. I smoked weed, but I was also really interested in this secret world of narco trafficking. And talk yeah. about how there was a confluence of of these kind of, you know, activities and groups of people in Waltham on September 11th, uh, 2011. Yeah. So so to bring the, that back to the story mm -hmm. here was I, I had grown up following murder cases in New England. 
um, I couldn't spell, but I knew homicide. I had a good feeling for homicide. And I had never heard of a case like this before. I had separated myself from the drug world when I was younger. And this was how I was really focused on being professional and establishing myself. And I heard about this horrific murder. I started looking into it. And then I found out one of the victims was Eric Wiseman, who was my friend. He was a he was a good person. Uh, we were real friends. I don't want to say that we were overly close, but he was a person who had a very positive impact on my life. And at the time, um, I had separated myself from the world of narco trafficking, but he had gotten in trouble a few months before and called me up and my father was representing him on another case. So for me, my whole life essentially screeched to a halt. Um, I was not only... I was still interested in this murder, but I was, I was grieving a horrific loss um, and trying to contend with that. Now this, let's state the, the the details of the stories. These are three men found in a second floor apartment in Waltham with their throats slit marijuana dumped on two of the bodies on September 11th, uh, 2011, the 10th anniversary of nine 11. Did that feel the anniversary? Did that feel like it had any connection uh, immediately to you or or over how much time uh, did that have to pass or how how much time passed before a possible connection between the anniversary of 9-11 and this crime? There are other details about this crime that stood out immediately to me. Okay. And we can get into that later. But to the victims, um, Eric Wiseman and Raphael Tekken, mm-hmm. who were Jewish and Israeli, their families immediately thought there might be a connection. Now, initially, the story was reported that the murders had taken place the day afterwards on September 12th. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I looked into this case, it was very clear that the victims stopped answering their phones on September 11th. When I went to Eric's funeral, that was the date listed as his death date, even though it was reported as uh, being a September 12th murder. Um, And so the date did strike me as unusual. What struck me as more unusual is that a convergence of a a carefully orchestrated murder Mm -hmm. and a crime of passion. I think you have to think about the physicality required to slit three people's throats. Yeah. Usually when you have a stabbing, that is a, a domestic case. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a someone who really wants the other person dead. <laughs> you know, you have to do the carry through of that rather as a professional murder would be done with guns, silencers. Um, and then the, the killers stuck around to dump drugs on the bodies to essentially stage the crime scene to send some sort of message. But it didn't match up to any sort of pattern within cartels that I had ever heard of. I hadn't heard of a murder like this anywhere, especially not in New England. In the docu-series, you make an interesting comment where, you, where you're referencing the nature of the killing and you say that stabbing is personal. <laughs> yeah, that line is one of those lines that, that come up a lot. Yeah, I mean, this is honestly something I learned from Growing up around murder cases, my father tried, has had 77 homicide cases, 36 that have gone to court and sitting through murder trials um, and hearing him practice his opening arguments. Stabbing is a personal crime. It's an intimate crime. You have to get close to somebody to 
to kill them like that. Whereas to kill somebody with a gun, you pull the trigger and they're dead. Um, there's a lot less passion involved. And did it feel like in this instance, the, 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 the stabbing and the, and the, you know, the, um, the slitting of the throats was meant to send a signal to make a statement? Yes, but I, I've, I'm familiar with murders within the narco community mm-hmm. um, or, the, or the Caribbean. Usually when there's a, a statement that's being sent by a cartel, everybody gets the memo. Yeah. The message is pretty clear. So it was clear they were trying to send some sort of a message, but of what? Mm-hmm. The drugs on the bodies was particularly unusual because why did the killers want law enforcement to think that it was connected to drugs if it was in fact a drug murder? Right. Whereas if it was a, you, you see this more in the, in the Caribbean where, where I'm familiar with, where certain areas are literally controlled by drug lords and they're sending a message and everybody gets the memo of what this is about and yep. why. Whereas New England, there was no clear message within the underworld community. And why would the killers, if the killers were involved in that drug world, why would they want police to follow that lead? In particular, why would the killers want law enforcement to know that the victims were involved in narco trafficking? It was very confusing to me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, here I was very early in my career. Um, I'm riddled with insecurities like everybody else who is, but I was like, crime is something I know. Some, crime is something I have a handle on. And yet I was second guessing my own instincts because I was also grieving the loss of my friend. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. How did you, how did you navigate being able to, um, maintain some degree of professional distance that, uh, that would not cloud, uh, your ability to piece together information and, uh, you know, and to, to be as objective, uh, as an investigator as possible. Oh, this is the question that I get a, a lot. Um, I mean, for one thing, I would have rather that somebody else do this work, right? It's not an ideal situation for somebody who has a personal connection to a victim to mm-hmm. go out and report on this case or, or, or seek answers. I mean, ideally, the story would be that law enforcement did a thorough job and apprehended the killers. And then there wouldn't really be too much of a story for me to write. Right. What was what was your sense uh, in the days and weeks following this murder? Was were you getting the sense or was the media, the news media that was working on the case, getting the sense that law enforcement was also finding these abnormalities uh, around the the nature of the killing um, and the the way the crime scene was left just to back up uh, to the, the previous question that I was talking about, um, the, I was a friend of the victim. Mm-hmm. I hold my journalism in all instances to an extremely high standard. Mm-hmm. And so I understand that the scrutiny is only going to be that much higher because of that personal connection. Sure. And for me, what matters more than anything is the truth. I knew Eric Wiseman. Eric Wiseman was interesting in that he really had a gift in that he, when he did speak to people, he could hone in on what you really wanted to do with your life. 
with me, it was journalism, storytelling, writing. And he, he zoomed in on that right away from the, yeah. the times that we hung out together. And as a journalist, I found that he had a similar impact with dozens of other people, whether it to be to start their careers in the legal cannabis industry, to become a social worker. And so in telling the story, I, the great gift of Eric Wiseman was that I knew that I would be paying him honor by telling the story right by pursuing the truth. And there was a potential, potentially I could find information that maybe he wouldn't want the world to know that might be embarrassing. And I had to prioritize that mission um, as a friend. But I mean, the, my real obligation here is as a journalist, as a member of society, right? To tell the truth. And in regards to the, the scrutiny that which I expect as a friend, I mean, bring it. (laughs) I think that was what was so great about working with ABC news, which is, um, it was one of my biggest concerns in making a docu-series is will this documentary, um, will it had to hold the same level of integrity and journalistic ethics that I bring into my own work. And that was what was so incredible about working with ABC news is that we have that vetting system. Um, we're working with people from that studio to, to make sure that every detail is right. I mean, that was another fantastic thing, ethics-wise, working with Story Syndicate, which we can talk about later. But the mission here is the truth. And that I happen to be a friend of the victim, ideally somebody else would have reported on the story, but they did it. And so I sought to do the best that I could. And that is my highest goal, is to get every detail right and Mm -hmm. to also be fair and to reveal my personal connection, um, as part of that story to, so the viewers can make that assessment to understand where I'm coming from as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very, um, from a viewer standpoint, your personal connection to one of the victims, you know, does create that personal connection and, and provides an, uh, a bit of a, an insight that strictly a top down investigative, um, uh, connect the dots type of a documentary might not. And yet your docu-series uh, actually does maintain that balance very expertly where there, it's obvious that there's the investigative rigor uh, and the journalistic rigor, but you do keep coming back to reminding the viewers of the, um, the, the personal nature of this loss for yourself uh, and, and even more importantly for the families uh, of these victims. Thank you. I, th- I think that's part of what I did in my book that I will, will be out later and that I tried to bring into the storytelling is to also investigate my own personal connection yeah. to this story uh, and my relationship to crime, which I tried to do a um, thorough investigation of myself to, to be honest in the telling of my own story. Yeah. At the same time, while the victim's families are very important to me. They, this is a personal story. What's more important to me than any of this is the truth and the same sort of principles that I bring into any piece of work. Yeah. And why I wanted to be a journalist in the first place yeah. is to hold systems of power accountable. The real, there, there's a horrific personal loss to these families, but there's another loss that I would argue is just as important, which is society, our system of governments, our, our trust in, 
people in power. And that is uh, the real focus of the story. And yes, the, that personal connection, I have to put it all out there on the table. Um, but what drove me to report on the story was the same principles that inspired me to be an investigative reporter and what well, it's almost a level of patriotism, I guess, to hold the system of power accountable. Um, what was happening in your pursuit of this story between September of 2011 and April of 2013? And April of 2013, of course, is the is, is the time of the Boston Marathon bombing. Are you asking about what I was up to? Or yeah, what, what you were up to in terms of um, how were you investigating and continuing to to try to get answers around the murder of your friend. Um, and then obviously the events of the Boston Marathon bombing brought a whole new dimension uh, to the significance of those murders. So I'm, I'm curious uh, how you were pursuing the story and what the uh, feelings of maybe insight or accomplishment were at that time to balance off between frustrations that you were feeling. Well, at first, in the first year and a half, it was really a, a, a stop and start, mm-hmm. start for me personally. I was contending with a, this horrific grief. Yep. I was interviewing people close to the case just who were in my own community um, down the street at a local diner. And more than anything, I was scouring the news for information. I was looking at other cases and I was noting when and more often than not, this story was not reported in the news. But I was also contending with this horrific loss. I was terrified. I was, Eric Wiseman was my friend. He was close to people who I've known since preschool. You see Dan Adler Goldman, um, it was it was really traumatic um, in the plainest sense of the word. So I would investigate it. I'd look into it. But then I also I have to try to not think about it, to right. go on with my life. I quit my job at the um, local news station. Right. I didn't want to think about crime right. anymore. Yep. Um, I worked at a, a, a think tank, essentially. I, I still wrote other stories about music and and beer, but I thought I was done with crime. You know, I had kind of gotten myself in trouble when I was younger. I, I was curious about my father's cases. I thought, okay, here's a, a straight and narrow way I could pursue that interest as an investigative reporter. And then Eric was killed and I had enough. Um, and that's why um, after the Boston Marathon bombing was happened, I both blamed myself for not doing more at that time. And also I was hesitant to pursue this at first. So walk me, walk me through a bit that process of, of realization or discovery um, between a possible connection uh, between the Boston Marathon bombing and the Boston Marathon bombers and the murders in Waltham. How did that begin to dawn upon you? Well, through, there's three victims at in Waltham, mm-hmm. Brandon Mass, who rented the apartment where the three men were killed, Raphael Tekken, whose father was a local spiritual leader in the community. Mm-hmm. He actually did a lot of my friends' bat and bat mitzvahs. And Eric Wiseman, who was my friend. Mm-hmm. So 18 months later, um, a story breaks in the news of this Boston Marathon bombing. And Tamerlan Sarnayev um, was a terrorist. He was also a former boxer. Mm-hmm. And he had been 
best friends with Brendan Mass. They had worked out with each other um, at the same gym, the Y Crew gym, three or four times a week. And so here you have a story of Tamlin Sarnayan and his relationship to a victim in an unsolved murder. And I remember reading about that story in my apartment in Cambridge and looking at my wall and I had a pamphlet from the one year memorial of Eric's death with the number of his the murder date, 9-11-11 on my wall. And I, I looked at the news, I looked at my laptop, I looked at my refrigerator and it, I mean, it, it was terrible. Um, that's when that date really did seem very significant to me. Yes. Yeah. And, but at first there was no real evidence that these two events were connected, right? There was just this notion that, okay, you have a man who is depraved enough to bomb the marathon and you have his best friend who was killed 18 months prior on a 9-11-11. I mean, is it possible that somebody who could bomb the marathon could also slit his friend's throat. Yeah. It also crossed my mind that maybe he, that's what pushed Tamerlan off the edge that he was contending with a loss too. I needed more evidence. Um, And then there was a, if we really want to, one month after that, I was trying to hold myself back from really diving into this story. I thought that, um, well, I was concerned that law enforcement may not have looked into the case thoroughly 18 months before. And I was hearing some indications that maybe that might be the case, but I thought, look, this is a national terrorist event. It was a landmark event for people to remember it. Then it was, um, it was before a lot of the attacks that we now associate with ISIS. Mm -hmm. I thought law enforcement on every level is going to do everything that they can to get to the bottom of what happened, including the FBI. One month later, there's a story that breaks out of Orlando, Florida, where a man named Ibrahim Tadashev mm-hmm. is shot seven times in his own home by a Boston FBI agent. There was two Massachusetts state troopers there as well. And he was questioned about the Waltham murders, but there was no press conference or an official statement of what happened. There was only accounts from anonymous law enforcement sources saying that yeah, they killed Ibrahim Tadashi, but he was a bad guy. He confessed to this triple murder in Boston and implicated Tamerlan Sarnayev. But there was no official answers as to if any of that was true. And there were so many questions about why does an FBI agent kill a man as he's about to confess? Mm-hmm. And that's when I you know, put aside my insecurities, my fears, my reluctance, and just went all in, started to investigate. So at that point, when you go all in, Mm -hmm. um, did you find that there were other journalistic um, um, entities or law enforcement entities that were feeling the same way that you were around? This can't be a coincidence. There's all of these events taking place. I didn't think this can't be a coincidence. I needed to know what the connection was and I needed to make sure that law enforcement was being held accountable. That was my initial objective as a journalist. Journalists aren't supposed to investigate murders. It it, it essentially became that, but I needed to hold law enforcement accountable. And you're wanting to hold law law enforcement accountable for the, what transpired in Waltham and what transpired in Orlando. 
Exactly. Because what began to happen, because there was no official statement from law enforcement, there were no answers. There were conspiracy theories that were really taking hold in the minds of people, especially people close to this case, looking for answers. Terrifying conspiracy theories. And I needed to know if any of those theories were true as well. Right. What I needed was the truth. Right. And uh, when law enforcement did provide answers. And I was expecting that law enforcement would provide answers about this case. It still hadn't happened. But when that day came, I needed to vet the investigations, uh, do what the jobs of journalists are, which is hold institutions accountable so that we could have some sense of if what they told us was true. How did you contend with simply, um, a lack of resources, you know, you're, you're seemingly you're, you're a one woman, uh, investigative, uh, reporter who's dealing with these massive crimes with these massive bureaucratic law enforcement, uh, and investigative, um, uh, entities, um, and 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 I know how difficult it can be to really just kind of uh, investigate the uh, the truth around a documentary subject, say that that you're working on, and how important you know researchers and production assistants and so forth are. I would imagine in your capacity at that point in time, you weren't outfitted with a staff and with a team that was going to dive in. This is, I'm talking about prior to this even being imagined as a docu-series. I'm talking about in the moment, in that time, um, you know, around May of 2013. Scrappy. Get by with my work. Scrappy indeed. Yes. I'm, I'm kidding. And I actually had a lot of help, you know, looking back, I think once you at this docu-series, you realize how many people were just so crucial to this process along the way. Um, and even as you're asking me, you're, you're asking me that question and that all those names of the people that did help me are, are running through my mind. I mean, most notably, I before I started investigating the story myself, I New York Times was look, looking into it. Mm-hmm. Serge Kowalski, Rich Opal, and um, they named me in their story. They also kind of gave me a stamp of confidence that okay. hey, go do this by yourself. After that happened, I had my name in the New York Times and Rachel Maddow actually reached out to me um, and her producer, uh, Nazanin, and had me on on her show. And that gave me a stamp of credibility. And then behind the scenes, um, they were really encouraging me to keep digging into this. Which was and, and as you're digging in, are you kind of bootstrapping this? Because, you know, t- digging in requires time and time equals money and, and resources along those lines. Well, then I I got um, I, I had sort of a, a, my breaking point where could I do this by myself? Mm-hmm. And at first I thought I would be helping other journalists right. do the story. I, I didn't think I could do it myself. And it became clear that I didn't there wasn't a, a journalist that I really felt I could support in that way. Um, I worked at BU and so I was taking a free magazine course. Um, but eventually I was connected to Boston magazine, mm-hmm. Carly Carioli, SI Rosenbaum, who I sent them a pitch and they, they were like, Oh, we'll come in. And they, I talked to them, but I had to write up a more professional pitch. And in that moment, um, just two days later, I got my first interview with Tatiana Grisdeva. 
and they flew me on a plane and I quit my day job. So I had some money step saved up, but then shortly after I had Boston magazine, which felt like a huge break for me. And I had resources and support and my editors to talk to. Mm -hmm. Then uh, Nazanin connected us to this American life with Brian Reed and uh, Julie Snyder. Um, Brian Reed, Julie produced Serial uh, Mm -hmm. shortly thereafter. Brian Reed uh, was the producer behind S-Town and the Trojan horse. So talk about resources. Yes. I really wasn't alone. I had Carly SI were totally devoted to this. Brian Reed is a very thorough journalist. I, I learned so much from him and from his process. And I had that initial boost of funding um, to start this story. And how empowering did having that formidable team backing you and believing in you, how empowering was that? Oh, it was incredible. It was incredible. Um, uh, It was was absolutely necessary. Um, I also had just friends who were attorneys who were really devoted to this. I'm thinking back to, she wouldn't want me to say her name, but my friend Julie, Okay. who was really diving into the weeds or we'd have those coffee conversations and that kind of support um, after this docu-series came out is it's just humbling. Yeah. All those, all those people in your life who are really in your corner, who would talk this out to me and, and my family, uh, my father as well, who um, as dark as this subject matter is, he's always game to talk about murder with me on the phone and to give, explain the legalese as I was going, um, which is just an incredible resource. I was extremely lucky. What, uh, what quality do you possess that, um, allows you to go up against what I imagine can be, um, a pretty formidable bureaucracy, uh, around trying to get answers around two two or three actually you know monumental uh events the the murders in Waltham the marathon bombing and and the you know the uh uh the subsequent um capture the killing and then the capture of the Sonarov brothers uh and then the event in in Orlando so you're trying to put together all of these pieces make a connection and you need sort of official insight official answers at certain points and and what i gathered from watching the docu series is that was not always easy to come by yeah i don't think i have any special qualities except for being really stubborn i made so many wrong turns and you don't see those wrong turns in the final product. Right. Um, I, I Maybe I'm lucky. Maybe I'm not. That's that's always what I ask myself. Um, but I think you get lucky if you knock on every door. Eventually, one or two opens. Right. right. And you w- might not tell the story of all those doors that you knocked on. Um, all the, the phone calls you made that didn't go anywhere. Um, all the records requests that seemed almost silly that that didn't make it into the story. Um, So I'm, I'm, I am fairly stubborn, but I think it was just this knowledge of how important this story was Sure, because of that personal connection. um, But also because of this was a really interesting, important story um, that I stuck with it. 
Mm-hmm. And and how far into your investigate investigation did you begin to think about this story in terms of a of a documentary? And then how did the docu how was it decided that let's do a docu series? And it's it's three approximately forty five minute episodes that are currently playing on Hulu. Um, I didn't at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first, it took me not only did I have to do all this investigating? I also had to teach myself how to write. (laughs) Um, So that was my, the other hurdle is not only do you have to uh, find the information, but you have to learn to to tell it and then find funding. Um, Mm -hmm. How did I, I lived at home for two years. I would, I lived in very small apartments. I drove, um, Uber and Lyft, which allowed me to, to focus on my work. Okay. Um, and eventually I got, I had a book agent, Bridget Matsi, who is incredible, who was in my corner after my first reporting with this American life and Boston magazine. And eventually I got a book deal, um, which with little a, which was fantastic. And then shortly thereafter that my agent said, um, anonymous content wants to option this book. And how'd that feel? That was, I, that was incredible. But I, to tell you the truth, this is getting into the weeds. I didn't realize they wanted to do a docu-series at okay. first. And um, I thought it was going to be a scripted show. Mm-hmm. I was like, sure, I can wash my hands from that. And when I learned that they wanted to do a docu-series, I was really upset. I didn't want to do a docu-series. Um, what, was because, your, what was your hesitance? Well, I just didn't want them anywhere near my murder case. Okay. The cameras, you know, there was so many ways that this could go wrong. And as much as I have an ego and I want to make money and I, I the idea of making a docuseries was incredibly appealing to me. Yep. Um, I have, I still have to sleep with myself at night. Right. You know, I, I didn't feel like I could profit off of my friend's murder if it wasn't going, um, if it wouldn't push the story forward and how I had never made a docuseries or a documentary before. How would I keep this show on the rails. And here's where, um, I was incredibly lucky. I, I knew I didn't really study documentary going, growing up, but mm-hmm. I did know Errol Morris, mm-hmm. um, his, I sort of blame him. Why did I stick to this all, all, all through, all through these years? But I, my family had the thin blue line that he gave to us. And I'd watched that movie over and over again. And my first job when I was 17 was, um, editing for Harvey Silverglate. Okay. He's the husband of Elsa Dorfman. Who's oh, in the sure. The photographer. B-side. Large so format was, photography. Yeah. So they were, I mean, those are also people in my corner and I had been, um, trying to get Errol to talk to me for years. You've got some very impressive people in your corner. Yes. Yes. Um, I'd been trying to talk to Errol for years unsuccessfully at coffee show, shops. I'd run into him. We weren't, or we weren't especially close, yeah. but I would try to talk to him about murder. But once I told him <laughs> that I, um, had my book optioned and I did not want to make a docu-series, he said, come on in. And in that initial phase, I actually spent a lot of time with Errol. He, he, sh- shot uh, uh, some footage actually with me in the Interatron in these early phases of this. Mm-hmm. But I was able to um, articulate my fears with him, essentially, of and talk to Josh Kearney, who's another producer there, of 
figuring out what it was that was important to me about doing this docu-series. And if I did a docu-series, what would have to happen? Uh, and initially I didn't want to do it. Errol said, okay, if you don't want to do a docu-series, Josh will help you research. Cause I did need help. I was alone in my work. I, I needed people to knock on doors with me. Um, did and the, so Errol did said, the oh. optioning of, of the book, did, did it give you any say in terms of how it was optioned? In other words, no. anonymous have come back and said, well, we're doing a documentary anyway on this. If you participate, that would be fantastic. But if you don't, we're going to find a way to work around you. I don't know how they that couldn't. would happen. Yeah, exactly. So, like, that, that, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. I mean, in, 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 in my contract, I think it, you know, I was initially a consulting producer. Yeah. Um, and so I spoke to, um, I was in Errol's office a lot. They helped me out a bit, but probably not as much as I needed. And so yeah. I was just back to kind of investigating again. And then I got an email from Matt Cook, who was also at Anonymous Content. Mm-hmm. And Matt Cook is a, a screenwriter. He wrote Patriot's Day. Um, but I had never seen any of his movies. I was yep. even more freaked out. Get this blockbuster guy out of, out of here. He's actually a fantastic screenwriter and just such a great balance. And he's me. in the in the film. There's several scenes of you having conversations with him. Exactly. So I hadn't seen his movies. I was freaked out because I was like, what do you know? about my murder case. And like, I wanted to shut this all down, but I had read some of his writing. He, um, he's from Texas. His first day of training was on September 11th, 2011. He's done two tours of Iraq as a staff sergeant. Oh, wow. um, and he has written about his experiences with quite tenderly, interestingly. Um, but I was, I was also scared. I was knocking on these doors. I was operating in this world of crime. So I knew he, you know, a lot of people, I could play this kind of tough girl act, get out of my murder case, but I couldn't do that with Matt. Like Matt's seen some, <laughs> seen some shit. Yes, he has. So I was talking to him again, pretty hesitant, but eventually we started talking about the people in the story. And I asked him if he wanted to knock on doors with me. And that's really where I needed help. And he said, yes. And I was like, thought, okay, that's, that could make sense if I could use a docu-series to push this case forward in a way that I couldn't by myself. Right. That would be great. That would make sense. So and the effort feels far more almost contemporaneous than it does a documentary that's sort of, you know, a retrospective on the crimes and the investigation. Yeah. And also that's more compelling to watch, right? Sure. Yep. Um, and, and that was also two in one and that I needed the docu-series to not just talk about research after the fact, but come with me mm-hmm. on the road and, and do the work because mm-hmm. that's what made sense. And that's what aligned with the whole purpose of what I was doing. How did and, you all arrive at what the uh, structure of the docu-series was going to be? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm talking sort of real nuts and bolts. In other words, like at a certain point, somebody had to say, all right, we're at picture lock. Like with no more new information, no more. If you got something late breaking, get it in now. You know, at it, at what point did you have to say, this is our story as it exists today? I think later in the game than they would have liked. But with that that interview with Rennie, Ibrahim Tadashev's wife. Yes. um, I think that was uh, 
the push of, okay, I've done all the reporting on this element of the story and that's what we have. There are a lot of elements of the story that I was able to dig into because I had the resources of the documentary mm-hmm. that are, were just totally on the cutting floor mm-hmm. for the show, but made sense because I have my book. Right. And the book is going, If I, as I understand, the book will be out early in 2023. Um, September of 2023. Oh, September of 2023. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so about a year from now, a little less than a year from now. And how do you see the book? Do you see the book as a companion to the series or do you see the book as kind of a, you know, a, a different take uh, on the same crime and investigations? There's, it sounds, there's so much more reporting in the book and okay. there are whole elements of the reporting that did not make it into the docu-series. And they're pretty delicate elements of reporting. So while at the same time, I'm hesitant to be like, oh, read the book. There's all this important information that I haven't told you yet. It feels kind of slimy to say that. At the same time, the reporting is so sensitive that it does require the careful layout of um, a book. And I think there's also a lot of nuance that you can get in writing that you can't get into a show that's important for that as well. Um, so there are companion pieces. There'll be elements that we go into the show that aren't in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, the the mission is just to get the information out there um, and to find it and to report on it. And there's still an ongoing records request that I've won after after the show. So okay. the Secretary of State is now reviewing Middlesex's files to see um Basically, a Middlesex, who's the district attorney in charge of the homicide, I refused to give documentation for years, claiming that it was an open and active investigation. Um, as I mentioned in the show, I asked for them to prove to me that it was active. Right. And yes. appealed that they could not put this blanket term over all of their work. And yeah. this, after three appeals, after the show, the secretary of state agreed with me. And so now Middlesex has to turn over all of their records to an outside entity, which is feels like a huge victory for me. Um, so earlier you had you you had mentioned conspiracy theories that might have been taking root or did take root. And I have to say, when I was watching the series, you know, the big the big question that kept coming to me was why? Like in the investigation of the the triple homicide in in Waltham, uh, and then particularly in light of the Boston Marathon bombing um, and the emergence of Tamerlan uh, Sarnev, um, the question why like why weren't these connections seemingly being made? Why weren't certain questions being asked and I guess that conspiratorial element of people's minds thinks, well, are they, is something being covered up? Is something being swept under the rug? Did somebody miss something? And now this is, you know, this is sort of a cover up of sorts. That's a very loaded term. But um, what's your sense of the why or is asking why the wrong question? Oh, asking why is the right question. And that is what we can talk more about in the book. But, But big picture, let me break it down like this. You have those conspiratorial theories, which essentially the thesis of which is there's someone at the top controlling all the different parts and all the screw ups, the things that look like mistakes are all part of this carefully calculated story that somebody is control in control 
of everything. Um, we can talk about motives of various actors and I can break them, some of them down for you after this. But what I found is more of a rot rather than somebody carefully calculating something on top. It's a series of actors, people in power at every step of the way, who rather than hold their own office accountable, their own people accountable, rather than do the hard thing that makes sense for the public, they've chosen to take the easy way out the less politically controversial way out. And it's had terrible consequences. What might have been politically controversial about a perhaps more thorough investigation? I realize that it the you know the official line is that it's ongoing. But what 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 could have been politically controversial about a more thorough investigation of the Waltham murders? Well, for example, you have the Middlesex District Attorney's Office. Mm -hmm. So they're the ones who we point to who drop the ball. They have jurisdiction. Yeah. Now, the outside agency that's supposed to hold law enforcement accountable is the Attorney General, mm -hmm. right? After the bombing, the Attorney General was Martha Coakley. Mm -hmm. Martha Coakley used to work at the Middlesex DA's office. Okay, if she yeah. was to hold an investigation like that, she would have had to be holding Jerry Leone accountable. Yeah. who was her partner in the Louise Woodward trial, the nanny sure. trial. Yeah, I recall. It would have, uh, she was running for governor and she was bringing the, the mother of that murder victim that, in the nanny case with her on her um, campaign. Yeah. So that would have been uncomfortable. Right. right? You have, then you'd have Maura Healy, who's the person in that position, that they would have had to... Um, and say Martha Coakley should have done this when I haven't. Then you have the FBI and typically the FBI's job is to look at corruption, to hold law enforcement accountable. It's part of the reason why state and local law enforcement has such a contentious relationship with the FBI. But then you have an issue where the FBI also dropped the ball on Tamerlan. They should have more thoroughly investigated him after Russia provided a tip, right? Uh, then you have the FBI agent who shot Ibrahim Tadashev to death. That doesn't look great either. So you have a lot of actors that would, it would be uncomfortable for them to do the right thing. And rather than do the right thing, they took the easy way out. You also then have the death penalty case, which is, it's complicated to break down in an oral interview, but you have a motive on behalf of federal actors not to close the Waltham murder case, to actually downplay its relevance because of the impetus on behalf of the government to sentence Jahar Sarnayev to death, whereas the defense, their biggest argument would have been, could have been, if they got it in, that Jahar was less culpable than his brother who had committed a prior violent ideologically driven act separately from Jahar before the bombing. Mm -hmm. Tell me about, a little bit about the type of response you're getting uh, to the docu-series uh, from viewers who are both intimately familiar with uh, all of the crimes and those that, you know, maybe uh, certainly were aware of the Boston Marathon uh, crime uh, bombing, but um, perhaps not the, the Waltham murder trial uh, case. Um, the response has been unbelievable. It's been surreal. The response to those by those who are close to this case, it's emotional to, for me to hear. 
Um, and it's extremely gratifying. Um, you know, my mission here was always to tell the truth, but to have someone like Eric Wiseman, who really believed in my capabilities as a storyteller, as a journalist, and then to know that I could do right by the story, but also do right by him by just doing my best and fighting for what's right. And um, it's been incredible. And to think that, yes, it was hard. <laughs> yes, I had to live at home and live in small apartments and, and do all that work and sacrifice a lot of my social life. But think of all I learned. You think I would have focused that hard on becoming a writer if I didn't have a murder to solve? Right. I would have been hung up on my ego and my insecurities. You think I would have advocated to uh, for the docu series in my role as a producer to leverage my way up as a consulting producer to where I'm now? If I didn't believe so much in the mission of this story, if it wasn't so important for me to do it right, mm -hmm. no. So it's extremely humbling, and I'm just incredibly grateful. In your mind, from a, <clears throat> as a journalist, is this an ongoing investigation? I know that the the law enforcement agency is is defining it as such, but I, in terms of devoting your time and your resources, what's your take on it? Are they actively investigating this case? I'm talking about journalistically, not not from you know. Is, is, is there anybody actively, out there doing what you've been doing? In other words, for the past no, number. No, I wish there was. Okay. <laughs> you know, it would have, that, that would be great. Um, but and, but there are a lot of people like you and who are inviting me onto their shows, who are talking about this now, and and that's incredible. Um, I'm so grateful for that, and I think that. Um, other journalists can and should pick the story up. I, 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 and a lot of them are. Well, Murders Before the Marathon, it's a three-part Hulu docu-series. It is enlightening. It is um, super informative. It is frustrating. Uh, and it's also, um, you know, as, as the best true crime documentary uh, features are, it's, uh, it's addictive, you, you know, I, you, you're going to want to stream this people. So make clear out a good three hours or so of your time and then uh, be prepared to have questions as you go in and maybe some questions as you come out. We've been talking with Susan Zalkine, who was the the investigative reporter of this documentary series and and one of the producers. Thank you for your time. And uh, we look forward to um, seeing your book when it comes out in about a year. And maybe we can have a conversation about that. I'd love that. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Likewise. Likewise.